Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening. Thank you for joining us on this rather charming night. And welcome to Utopia Then and Now, uh, organised in association with the Times Literary Supplement. I'm Michael Keynes. I'm an editor at the TLS. I'm joined tonight by three distinguished speakers. Let me tell you who they are. Um, on the end, we have Dr Matthew Beaumont, who's senior lecturer in English at University College London, and the author of Night Walking, A Nocturnal History of London published last year. It's just out of paperback, is that right? So you can all rush yeah, out and find that in the shops. <laughs> and he's um, editing The Invisible Man at the moment for OUP. He's the author of The Spectre of Utopia, Utopian and Science Fictions at the Fan Siècle, and Utopia Limited, Ideologies of Social Dreaming in England, 1870 to 1900. Uh, I also have Dr. Chloe Houston, who is here. He's a lecturer in English at the University of Reading, and the author of The Renaissance Utopia, Dialogue, Travel, and the Ideal Society, and the editor of New Worlds Reflected, Travel and Utopia in the Early Modern Period. And lastly, I'm very grateful to Dr. Nicole Pohl, who's able to join us at the last minute, uh, as Ruth Levitas is unable to join us. Uh, Nicole is reader in Early Modern Literature and Critical Theory at Oxford Brookes University. Uh, I know her as an 18th centuryist, but she is also the editor of Utopian Studies, the Journal of the Society for Utopian Studies, and she's the author of Women, Space, and Utopia, 1600 to 1800. As you may have guessed, we're going to be talking a lot about utopia. We're talking about a book that is 500 years old, and yet somehow, magically, we think, uh, still relevant today in some way or other. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about more, Thomas More, and we're going to talk about the rich history of utopianism, rich, varied, and sometimes rather perilous. Um, but I think what we're going to begin with, um, it, well, we're going to take it fairly chronologically, really, and we're going to start with the origins of utopia, not really with 1516, but I wonder if I can ask maybe Nicole to start by talking about the origins of utopianism. What was there before Thomas More came along and gave us this word, utopia? Yes, that's, it's a good point, actually, because often what people associate with the word um, utopia is, of course, Thomas More's seminal text, Utopia. The thought itself, utopian thought, the utopian impulse, um, existed way before that. So some scholars go back to the classical period, of course, of Platon, the Republic, um, seeing some, in fact, some examples already there on which Thomas More drew some of ideas from. If you think about the kind of communist economy in Thomas More's Utopia, that would be one. Um, the dedication to democracy and elected statesmen would be another one. But you could go even before that, and there are some scholars, and I think quite convincingly have argued that ultimately the utopian impulse is in all of us. So you can see it in scriptures such as the Bible, the idea of paradise that we then lost, of course. Um, and if you go across all different kinds of cultures and to sort of tales of origins, the genesis of, of societies, you will find that kind of utopian impulse in all of them, be it the idea of Arcadia or 
kind of um, beautiful, the island of the blessed. We could go on now for hours and kind of naming all these different kinds of ideas. But the idea is to speak with Ernst Bloches that we all have this propensity for dreaming and social dreaming. And the, the point is, what do we make of this? What, what, how, will we transform this into something practical? I'm, I'm very happy to be taken immediately off my script, because I was just Sorry. thinking about, no, no, in, in a good way. Because I was thinking about origins in, in historical terms, which you've, which you've mentioned. But also, you're talking about the kind of innate um, utopianism, perhaps. Is it fair to call it that? I mean, perhaps somebody else could say, does this ring a bell? Does this ring true for you, the idea that there's a kind of innate or universal utopianism or it begins with what we desire, is that fair? I'm a little bit, I mean, in a sense, yeah, it, it, it's obvious enough that we're, all, um, that we're all governed to some extent by utopian impulse. I mean, we all feel hopeful at one time or another, you know, the more, you know, there's an interesting balance to be established between, uh, between sort of misery and hope. Do we, how, how immiserated do we have to be to either feel hope or feel no hope? Uh, I mean, that's obviously an interesting question, but I'm a little bit suspicious of the idea of a utopian impulse mm -hmm. in some ways, I, of anthropologizing this notion of, of utopia. I think it sometimes involves a depoliticization of, mm. of utopia. Um, and, you know, we could spend the entire <coughs> evening arguing about the semantics of the word utopia. Uh, and uh, Let's do that. <laughs> but I'm not sure it would get us, get, get us anywhere. I mean, one of, the, you know, one of the beauties of sticking with, not that I'm trying to close down debate, uh, with, with Moore's utopia is that it defines it in fairly strict, generic terms, um, which I think can be, can be productive, actually. Okay, so uh, Chloe, perhaps I can ask you, you then about um, Moore and how how these ideas immediately come into his life and his, his world. Sure, okay, well, in, so in 1515, Moore is a city lawyer. He's asked by the King's Council to um, travel and to undertake some negotiations, which he does. And during those travels um, in the Low Countries, he has a period of rest time, because um, the negotiations are stalled. And during that time, um, he, visits with friends, has discussions with them, including Peter Giles or Gillis, who's in Utopia, the text. And as part of that, he is um, inspired to write book two of Utopia. That's the description of the utopian society. So that's how, um, how he comes to create Utopia that we know. Um, and then the following year, it's published, um, not in England originally, in Louvain, and, um, and sometime in between that time um, he's writing book one, which is the conversation which takes place at the house of Peter um, Giles or Gillis. And so that's how he kind of brings, brings that idea forth. Um, but it's interesting to note that he begins with the description of the society um, and everything else around it comes later. That's a really interesting thing, isn't it? I, mean, I suppose when we think about utopia, colloquially, there's the idea that it's just about um, an ideal society of some sort. But obviously, Moore's Utopia, the book we're really talking about, um, there's much more to it, isn't there? And I see it described as, I saw it quite recently described in the book as being one of the foundation stones of the English novel. I saw it described at the same time somewhere else as being a satire, and somewhere else described as a manifesto. I mean, obviously, you come across, and you know better than I do, that all these things are sort of maybe possible or, or tenuous readings. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about the structure of the book and how it's made to maybe mean more than just book two than just the description of the island. Yeah, which is often, often, as you say, when we think of utopia, we tend to think of the description of the island. Well, utopia, I mean, the, the text and the idea have come to mean as many different things as there are interpreters. And one of the interesting things about looking at the history of utopia, the text, is how it is so frequently reinterpreted by um, so a Catholic audience who are interested in the idea of St. Thomas More and who find in it Catholic values. And then, of course, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of those who are interested in communism and who find the community of property very exciting. So utopianism gets um, redefined. But um, in terms of thinking about the book as a whole, we've got book one, which is this um, discourse, um, which is really um, kind of a meditation on the ills of Tudor society that Moore is thinking through. Um, and it's the conversation, of course, between the character of Thomas More and this traveller, Raphael Hithliday, um, and Peter Giles. So it's... it's Utopia is about debate, and it's about putting ideas forward, I think, rather than, although, as you say, it offers quite a clear sense of what 
um, how we might understand a utopia or, or how we might think about that as a concept. It's about opening up to ideas and discussion rather than trying to provide something which is prescriptive. And that's, I think, one of the key ways in which the text has arguably been misread or if not misinterpreted, then um, perhaps closed down because historically it's often been understood as a, a, an ideal society. Right. So that is more like the sort of blueprint approach to Moore's utopia, right. isn't it? Right. And there are... I mean, not, not, not in his lifetime, but there are examples of people treating it as if it was the description of a real place on the other side of the world. Is that, is that right? Is that, can you say, is, is, do you know what I'm talking about there? Is that ring a bell? Often, or have I imagined it? When we, no, when we teach it and you read interpretations of it, that's, what, that's a trap people fall into. But then I think where Thomas More was such a genius was that the ambivalence is already in the title, that he had that wordplay between no place and good place. There is a kind of tension there that comes out in the text as well. I mean, in the second book, um, the fictional Thomas More says, well, this is all very lovely, but I don't want to live here. I mean, obviously he says it much nicer than I do, but <laughs> it's an indication that there's something, there's a tension there, but the tension provokes us. And as Chloe said, that it, it, it starts us thinking and imagining and perhaps being also critical, being socially critical or politically critical. And I think that's the whole point about the first and the second book being a sort of intention as well. And I suppose as well it, it, it complicates and enriches that story that the book isn't, it's not just a static yeah. text as it were, it quite quickly changes. And there's also several translations, aren't there? There's mm -hmm. not an English yeah. translation until after um, Moore's death. But it does travel across Europe, doesn't it, quite quickly uh, along sort of the humanist network lines. I mean, what, what sort of reaction do you think of, or do we have reactions from uh, Moore's contemporary humanist scholars? What Do we know what they, they, they made of it? Well, Utopia was very popular immediately. And as you say, we printed lots of different editions. Um, and it's important, I think, in that context to think about it as a European text rather than an English one, because the earliest editions of Utopia are coming out in European presses. Um, Moore is writing for an educated European elite audience. Those are his, you know, his fellow humanists, are his, um, his sort of intended readership. And so I think for those readers, um, the text is you know, immediately um, very exciting. And there's lots of, you know, sort of interesting discussion about it, but it, alongside that, you see quite quickly um, a fixing on the idea of utopia or the term utopian um, in, in the same way that we would use it today in a pejorative sense, so that there is the idea that utopia itself is something which is unrealistic, um, idealistic to the point of um, you know, being useless. Um, and that happens quite quickly. So we see this um, taking on board of Moore's ideas, interest in the sort of political debate, um, but also this notion that utopia itself is something which is um, uh, unreachable and, and um, even dangerous. I think that's a good point to skip ahead as well to the 19th century. I mean, Matthew, is this where the idea of dystopia comes in, is it, is it Ruskin or somebody first, I think in the OED it's Ruskin or somebody said first come in. Is that where this idea comes in? Are people actually misreading utopia by coming up with that word? Because it doesn't suggest that utopia is the ideal place and dystopia is the opposite, whereas in fact it's built into, maybe sort of it's there already in Moore's book, that utopia is not perfect and he wouldn't have seen it that way. Um, can you tell us about creative misreadings, we can call it that, in the 19th century and how people responded to it then? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, the, um, certainly, I mean, I'd agree with what Nicole and Chloe have said about the, the slipperiness, the, not only the semantic ambivalence of the term utopia, um, which uh, more deliberately invests, um, also the, the, the slipperiness of the, of the form. I mean, when I said that, you know, it's a good place to start utopia because it gives us clear generic boundaries. You're absolutely right. It, I mean, it doesn't in a way. It doesn't. It, it doesn't. Um, and we need not only to think of the two parts, the two books, but the, the so-called paratexts, uh, you know, the letters, the, the alphabet, the, uh, the, the illustration, the, the map. Uh, and all of that make it a peculiarly slippery and, and, and sort of polysemic text, I think, um, and one that gets appropriate in all sorts of different ways. It's true that in the, in the 19th century, the term dystopia comes in. I think, I can't remember, it's a while since I looked at uh, the OED definition of dystopia. Um, it tends to be, I think, in, in parliamentary debates 
um, that uh, that these terms are, are for the, these these other terms like dystopia, like the term cacotopia, um, which is a, a good and peculiarly kind of pungent and expressive one. one. It didn't catch on so much, but but it has a kind of pungency that I particularly like. Um, uh, and and they were associated not so much, in fact, with uh, with literary text. I think that came slightly later, but with uh, the, the far worse prospect of, of actual political movements or political ideals that threaten to materialize uh, and that therefore you know, made the establishment nervous, uh, made, made politicians um, fear you know, certain new, new political, political ideas. Um, so, um, so yeah, the, the, so the, the other story I suppose to tell is about the ways in which in which some of the ideas that are present in Moore get um, get materialised, get embodied in historical movements, at least potentially or or partially. Um, you know, that's something that that Marx and Engels were interested in when they thought about the utopian socialists and 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 framed them in in terms of a long history that went back to to Moore and and to Plato beyond beyond Moore. Um, you know what they relished in the utopian socialists in Fourier and, and Saint-Simon and Robert Owen um, was the, the creativity of their ideas and this form within framework within which they were thinking, which they'd inherited from more. Um, but they were quite clear that uh, that they were ultimately not going to be particularly useful to the working class movement because they had no concept of agent, of political agency. They had no uh, way of socially, collectively implementing these these you know, more or less communistic or socialistic ideas. It's slightly later on in the 19th century when the working class movement across Europe uh, begins to take off, when trade unions uh, forms after the revolutions of 1848, that uh, that some of these utopian ideas begin to acquire a, a, a dystopian or a cacotopian quality um, because, my God, maybe they just might be realized in, in historical terms. So this is a good example of what you were talking about in terms of the, the, the historical way that the value of utopia changes and gets used in different contexts. And I wonder if it also touches on the, the question raised earlier about utopia's relevance and its, its urgency for people now. It seems to come back, I, I think, um, in various, various forms. Seems to be on the agenda. Perhaps we can we can go back and fill in the gaps, very large gaps between that that scene, the kind of early um, utopian socialists, uh, and Moore's utopia. Perhaps um, I can ask you know Nicole and Chloe to talk about some of these 16th to 17th century kind of imitations of Moore or alternatives to Moore. I mean, what for you are the most important examples of people taking that template? and doing something their own with it, responding to their own times. Chronologically, I feel that's appropriate. Well, I mean, it, the, utopianism really gets exciting again after more in the early 17th century, um, which is not to say that utopias aren't being written before then in England. They are. Um, there are some utopian dialogues written um, in the 1570s and 80s. Those tend to be by people who are seeking to garner patronage by um, presenting ideal societies to potential patrons. So there, and, and interestingly, those are obviously by then um, people who are trying to sort of get advantage with certain Protestant um, ideas about the consolidation of Protestantism and the Reformation. So slightly different to what Moore's doing. They've taken the idea of the ideal society, but not really the irony and the multi-layered sort of confusions of meaning that we've been talking about. In the early 17th century, um, utopia becomes a very... Uh, exciting idea for a number of reasons um, to, to writers who are really thinking about what it might mean to reform, to change society. Um, so that might be in terms of um, natural philosophy, the beginnings of science, with writers like Francis Bacon, mm-hmm. for whom the notion of a society in which you could create your own um, uh, circumstances and then see what might follow was very um, useful because they could use that to suggest what might be necessary for the support of projects that they wanted to see implemented. So utopia changes from something which is essentially a philosophical, experimental sort of exercise into something which becomes increasingly about actually achieving social or institutional reform, if not on a widespread scale, then within specific institutions. So 
Bacon's utopian works, for example, are seen as precursors of the um, Royal Society, um, of, of scientific institutionalised. Uh, so we're thinking of Bacon here. Oh, is, is there anyone else you would put in that same bracket from the early 17th century for whom it's, it's got a sort of political, programmatic appeal, the idea? Well, definitely on the continent. You know, people mm -hmm. like Tommaso Campanella, who's, who, you know, is writing The City of the Sun, um, um, also in the 1620s, which is when Bacon's New Atlantis is being written. People who are, are um, very excited by the sort of imaginative potential that utopia brings. And again, these are often people who are involved in direct reform, you know, that they are involved um, in, in social movements too. Um, and then, of course, in, in, in you think, coming back to England, um, in the 1640s, there are a number of um, both political and, again, sort of educational or um, philosophical movements that are really able to make use of the utopian form in directly trying to demonstrate the goals that they are seeking to achieve. And again, that's when utopia is de-ironised, if you like, that, that the effort there is, is simply to um, present a society that might might actually be achievable. And these are often people who believed that the ideal society was achievable right. because for various religious and political reasons, they thought they might be able to make it happen at that, that that's crucial really stage in That's really extraordinary history. key difference, isn't it? The idea that it's not utopia, fantasy, the other side of the world, whatever you want to call it, or, you know, or satire on travel literature. It is actually something that's within reach. That's right, because, because for more, you know, I mean, more, um, no matter how we might use to read him today, um, was... Um, somebody who I think very profoundly believed that the ideal life was something which could not be achieved, it could never be achieved on earth. Um, and it would almost be, um, it would be wrong-headed to think that you could uh, create an ideal society. Um, the ideal society exists after death, it's, it's within God's grace to give you that. Um, when you start to think about actually achieving um, political change in a much more fervent way, then utopia becomes a much more real concept. Yeah. Right, I see. And, and, and did this tendency continue as you see it, it later? It does continue. I think there are sort of pockets around revolutions where you find precisely what Chloe described. So the 1640s, the English Civil Wars, had movements and experiments like the diggers, for instance, who, who had a very different take on... A, the exercise of your Christian faith, but also had a very different take on um, land ownership, hence the name diggers, I think. They were saying that the moment you work your land, you are entitled to own the land. Um, this was clearly a rebellion against the um, fact that most of the land was owned by few aristocrats and the crown. So these movements came up, vanished again, popped up again during the French Revolution as well, and the American Revolution. Um, one text I would like to add to Chloe's um, um, list of texts is Margaret Cavendish, because in general we think about utopias as being radical, politically radical, be it communist, variations of that, um, certainly democratic. There are also royalist utopias, and for us we now think, why is that the utopia? I can't be right. But <laughs> given the 1640s up to the 1660s, of course the idea of the return of a king or queen and the perhaps implementation of a reasonable and a just um, monarch and, and royal system, monarchy, sorry, um, seemed as a quite interesting and, and desirable goal. So we have someone like Margaret Cavendish, who in 1666 wrote The Blazing New World, and What's quite interesting here also is that it's a, a royalist utopia, but it's also a feminist one. So you could, you could argue that this was kind of the first one that dealt also with the role of women. And Margaret Cavendish says at the preface, I cannot be Julius Caesar, I can't be Charles I, I can't be all these amazing male leaders, so I make up my own world. And that gives an indication that she takes Thomas More's idea as a thought experiment, okay? But she was also involved, of course, in royalist politics and therefore thought along those lines as well. 
if we go to the 18th century, which obviously is the most important century in the world. <laughs> um, Complete agreement. Well, exactly. Um, things change. Sorry about that. <laughs> we could have a fisty fight later on about that. But if we think That's about... That's extra, the, by the way. You know, <laughs> the 18th century is quite interesting because what you have, if you think about the context of the 18th century, is that the world is increasingly discovered, isn't it? Thomas More had it quite easy. He plonked an island somewhere thinking, oh, this is there. No one knows what it looks like. Let's make it up. Okay, and in some ways, some of the, the travel narratives, the geographical utopias in the 17th century are very similar to that. Apart from Australia, New Zealand, the other side of the world, not all continents were completely unknown to the Enlightenment readers and scholars. So what happened, and that also came about with a different understanding of history, is that we move from the geographical utopia, as in an island or a planet or a location unknown, to one that builds in progress. So instead of saying, we all have to, like in Thomas More, live on an island, completely isolated, as a kind of social experiment, the idea is that we actually can improve as society. We can develop towards something. So the idea of progress and history is built in. It only works if at the same time you think about human nature. And the idea, of course, during the Enlightenment was that we are all, well, not all, men are, women not, all equipped with reason and understanding. Okay, if we develop this, we actually ultimately don't need a state, we don't need laws, because we all will follow our own sense of justice, of reason and understanding, and we can better ourselves. We can develop society that will become better, and that also ultimately leads us then, of course, into socialism and the Ethiopian socialists as such. What you still have parallel to that in the 18th century are still quite wacky utopias which are set in Australia and New Zealand um, where the idea of the, the, the other side of the world, the world upside down, is really played out in quite comical ways. You have very odd creatures mooching about and very odd society. So that's quite interesting. And so that would be one strand going parallel, the ones that um, embed history and progress in, in the utopian thought. Um, and there's also what I would call the emergence of the critical utopia. If you think about Candide, for instance, who goes around all these different kind of societies, is in El Dorado, for instance, swamped with gold, wealth, and all that. It's fantastic. But he says, not good enough. It's static. It's not enough for me. So the critical utopia, in a way, in the 18th century, <coughs> indicates already that there's a problem with the model of stasis that Thomas More has introduced, that nothing will change. You will just, And that goes, of course, hand in hand with the idea of progress, that we develop mm -hmm. as humans. We develop towards perfection. That's very, I, I mean, this question, this question, where is utopia? But also, you, I mean, you raised several points there. Where is utopia? Is it on the other side of the world? Is it in your mind, as Margaret Cavendish said? And I think, I think she sort of ends by saying, you can do this yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm. Anyone can have a utopia. It's yeah. all part of your, in your brain. Yeah. Which is a very interesting idea, because I don't think anyone says anyone can, you know, there's no complicated way doing this. It's just think something up. Um, but all that, so that's one end of the scale. You also, because you said that, reminded me of uh, the, the Isle of Pines, where yeah. sort of, you can map it exactly yeah. to where it is. In, is it the Indian Ocean? Yeah. Uh, and what it might mean in political terms, to have a sort of British outpost there. And that, and, but that also raises the question of scale, because in a sense, that's, that's quite a small thing, isn't it? It's a shipwreck story mm -hmm. before Crusoe. Mm -hmm. um, and you have, the third thing I had in mind is you reminded me of, um, of Swift. Yes. I suppose if we're talking about critical utopias, is, can we say Gulliver's Travels is a forerunner to that? The idea in a way, have, yes. In a way? Yeah. Yeah. The idea of a society maybe run by reasoning horses, that kind of thing. <laughs> And he does the same with the maps, doesn't he? He gives yeah, yes, you the location. Exactly, yes. It just doesn't exist. So, so there isn't... But and what's the, also, I think, interesting about Swift there is he does seem to maybe pick up the element of, of, of maybe mockery or, or playfulness or mischief mm. that mm. some of these, mm. uh, the more sincere versions mm. of this, mm. miss out on. Mm. It's one good reason to fall in love with the 18th century, I think, right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we've also raised the subject, um, Matthew, of, of um, revolutionary politics and the diggers. Uh, this is something... I, Something to, uh, to which I think 
19th century socialism perhaps looked back. Is it fair to say that that's, that's, that's true and that utopianism is tied in with that? And then also we start to see the emergence of, um, I, I, I hope I've got this phrase right, intentional communities. I'm saying the right thing there, the idea of, say, something, a pantosocratic scheme that you can escape to America if you're Southey and Coleridge, or at least you think you can if you have enough money, yeah. if you can raise enough money, and start afresh there. I mean, this is something that, that seem, a lot of people seem to try and, and fail at doing this, don't they? Trying to establish their own little world in the, in the Americas. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, by the early 19th century, partly inspired by the, uh, by the ideals of the French Revolution and the American Revolution, um, there's, a, there's a sense that the future has been opened up and that, and that everything's to play for and that thinking in utopian terms is, you know, is a, is a useful framework for, is a useful way of framing, framing politics. The problem is, of course, that, you know, in the 19th century, and increasingly, uh, industrial capitalism is is making it extremely f hard to find places, um, certainly places at all near to, near to home, uh, where it might be possible in any meaningful sense to implement these utopian ideas and these radical uh, political ideas. And um, hence, I think, to put it slightly crudely, uh, yeah, these uh, these sort of pockets of utopia crop up um, various people in a fairly uncoordinated way, um, not as they will be later in the, in the 19th century, um, guided broadly by a, a historical movement like the, the working class movement, look for opportunities to set up institute um, at a relatively local, self-contained level, uh, utopian societies, utopian Communities. I mean, they're, they are almost all doomed, but not. You know, some of them, um, some of them survive um, for a bit. You know, Owenism, for example. Um, not only in the in the context of factories in in, in England, but um, communities in, in America. They tend to be, uh, you know, rather susceptible to all sorts of wacky ideas. Frankly, um, could you and, say something about what? What Owen, Owenism is? I mean, its founders. Wrote yeah, I'm, I'm not really much of it. It's sort of before my. Without oh, right, okay. to sound kind of really <laughs> narrowly academic. It's, it's sort of it's sort of before my area of expertise. It, Owenism. I haven't, I haven't read any Owen for for a very long time. But it's partly about about reorganising the factory. It's about taking the industrial um, system and and reorganising reorganizing it on a, on a much more humane and uh, disalienated, as the, as, as the Marxists would put it, um, and, uh, and democratic basis. Um, it's, as I say, it, it, it did lead to um, communities, the Owenite uh, communities, not just the Owenite reorganization of factories, um, uh, but they tended to run into, into all sorts of sort of ideological problems. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
it's not least because, at least officially and at least initially, they were keen to foster uh, kind of intellectual uh, freedom and, and, and political freedom of one kind or another. I mean, so the Owen, a lot of the Owenite communities in, uh, in, in America, for example, uh, get infected by fashionable spiritualist ideas. Mm -hmm. And um, and this tends to, to sort of play havoc with people. And there are splits between materialists, philosophically speaking, and, and, and rampant idealists and spiritualists, philosophically speaking, which, which and the communities kind of founder on... on on, on these contradictions. I wonder if there's a, there's a nice basic split there in utopianism between people who see it merely as a, or essentially as a materialist um, idea or movement or, or something, and people who, for whom there is a spiritual element to it. I mean, this is something sometimes, I suppose, passed over as being, although it seems blindingly obvious, given who Thomas More is, but as being of fundamental importance to More's utopia, it's hard to see how he could have written it the way he did if he hadn't been uh, deeply devout. Is that is that a fair way to talk talk about utopias in general and, and more? I Just think to come back so. to it briefly. Yeah, I think so because more is. I mean, you know, there are many different influences on more, not least, of course, you know, he's a Renaissance humanist, so he's looking back to classical values, to Plato, um, but. Um, another major influence there is the early church fathers and development and of, of early Christian philosophy. And one of the things that Moore is trying to do is, is to bring these together in a society and, and make sense of all of these different values at the same time. So absolutely, um, the, the idea that, I mean, as I mentioned before, the idea that the ideal society is something that could exist on earth is something that's problematic mm -hmm. um, for Moore as a devout, you know, as a devout Christian. Um, and so the, the, one of the interesting things about utopia the utopians is that they are sort of on the brink of revelation you know that they are an ideal society that exists without christianity and this was a an issue that um renaissance humanists like more were encountering when they you know when they were reading classical the text for classical antiquity literature and philosophy they were having to make sense of these societies that um that had all of this wisdom and, and wonderment but did not have christ and that, in, in a certain extent, utopia is also an experiment in how you can, um, you know, how you can sort of build an ideal society without Christ itself, right. I mean, which is, is a pretty radical thing, actually, yeah, for sure, when Moore's that. writing. That's not, that's not um, common. I mean, is that, that's a contribution, then, to an ongoing theological debate of the time about whether people can be saved who are not from Christian societies. Right, absolutely. And um, also because, I mean, the travel context is really important that Nicole mentioned because at the time when Moore's writing, there are, you know, travel writings increasingly um, being published, but these are, there are large areas of the world that, that European audiences aren't familiar with. And they're encountering people who don't, um, who don't have revelation, who don't have Christian faith, Christianity in their societies. And they're having to, they're trying to understand who are these people? Where do we place these people theologically? How do we make sense of them? Are they are they exactly? Can you be saved or, um, you know, without without revelation? So it, it's it's part. It's it's a very um, contemporary thing for Moore and his readers, but it's also about an engagement with the past and a trying to make sense of classical and Christian values together. I see. So I mean, and that's one of the I mean, really really extraordinary things, I suppose, about about the book that we're trying to get at here is is that something that that it in, is clearly engaging with that debate. If that's that's a way of describing it um, at a very close and urgent level for 15, 16 can be taken and used in completely different ways and for different purposes in the 19th century, the 18th century. Uh, Matthew, I, I think it maybe this tendency starts earlier, starts in the 18th century, but I know you, you've um, edited Edward Bellamy's um, great utopia, if we can call it that, looking, looking backward, um, which is actually a book looking to the future, the year 2000. Uh, when, when, was it, when, was it, when was it published, and what's, what are you trying to do there? What's he trying to show us about the world? Better? I didn't know whether you were, you were, you were sceptical about whether it is greatness or it's utopia. It's certainly a utopia. How great it is is, is open for a debate. Uh, it, was, it was published in 1888. Its title is Looking Backward 2000 to 1887, and uh, it was really the first... Um, the first really successful utopia um, to project its idealized society into the future rather than to locate it uh, in a, in a uh, distant climate. And it was enormously successful. I mean, it was only the second novel uh, 
in the in the U.S. in in the 19th century to to sell a million copies. So I mean, it was after Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was it was a real phenomenon, and it not only sold an enormous number of copies, particularly from its second edition onwards, but it spawned two uh, lots of political societies, uh, organisations based around. They call themselves nationalist clubs after the uh, the 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 ideology that Bellamy enshrines and celebrates and uh, and and explains in in the uh, in this utopia which is set in Boston in the year 2000 and which projects forward from the, the from the late 19th century nationalism is is not really nationalism as we think of it would it would it it's a way of domesticating uh, gentrifying, if you like, socialism in the late 19th century. Edward Bellamy was a socialist, but he was extremely nervous of revolutionary socialism, of anarchism, of anything that, as he put it, smelt of petroleum. And he, um, he consequently decided to rechristen what he was doing, which was a, a kind of state socialism, or a state communism, perhaps, nationalism in order to indicate that in his future society the nation was the sole owner it was as it were the sole capitalist uh, and for him this solved an enormous amount of, of problems economic problems but also political problems uh, but it, it yeah it had a huge huge political impact even impinged in various ways on uh, on, on elections in, in in America in the in, in the um, 1890s and it generated this slew of utopian novels. So there's an explosion in the late 19th century of utopian fictions, and it really then does become the utopian novel a kind of political currency. It becomes, in some odd way, a lingua franca, um, a language in which people talk about uh, political crises in the present and how they might be solved. There are lots of relatively famous ones. News from Nowhere, William Morris's uh, Utopia of 1890 to 91 is probably the most, but uh, but but hundreds of others uh, and directly rebutting or, or embroidering his his Bellamy's case. Oh, that that was that was my my question actually. So so a lot of these are on the uh, socialist side, of, but there are people who write back, aren't they, and do their own version of the future. Um, it becomes almost the case. I mean, we, we are bordering here on the question of science fiction, aren't we? And, and writing the future, and, and travellers not only being able to go around the world or into their own mind, but being able to go into the future. I, I think it's. I'm like imagining this. There is an 18th century one called the Year Two 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 Four. Oh, or merci. Something. Yeah, yes, that's, that's a French it, one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what happens? What, what happens in that one? Are we looking at a similar? Well, the scenario is, is it's, <coughs> it's without the niceties of the novelistic um, form. With Bellamy, what you have is he falls asleep, doesn't he, and wakes up, and suddenly he's in the year 2000, which is an excellent device, which Mercier hasn't quite developed in that way. But it's also a forward-looking of Paris in the year 2000 and whatever it was, and um, envisaging a completely different idea of how the urban space could look like. And he kind of prefigures Rouvain later mm -hmm. on because you talked about science fiction. Yeah. So, yeah. That uh, would be one of the first ones, certainly in the European context, that looks forward into the future like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, these are questions of, of, of scale and time and uh, utopia in the mind. Now we're moving into the 20th century and we're looking at um, I've quite a sort of different changed landscape, aren't we? I mean, and I wonder, though, whether to link it back to more. It's quite interesting to maybe to think about the utopias and dystopias with which we're all very familiar. I mean, Orwell and Huxley and some other names you'll know, and, and, and Margot Piercy, um, Woman on the Edge of Time, up to the present day. Um, but I wonder if we think about Moore's changing reputation as, as well. I mean, it, the change from being um, canonised in the 30s, I think, very late, and wasn't canonised in, you know, in the 16th century, um, to being a kind of hero of Robert Bolt, to inevitably, I'm going to say it, the villain of Wolf Hall. Yes. Um, how does this maybe change the uh, utopia? I mean, it change, doesn't change it directly, I shall I say. But as, as, as readers, as people who think about Moore as the author of this book, we're stepping from a period when he could be a hero and utopia might be thought of as um, a book championing say, wealth held in common, important ideals for, for socialism, 
um, to being a kind of crabbed fundamentalist who couldn't possibly have dreamt up utopia, I think. I mean, you know, as as I enjoy aspects of Wolf Hall, I don't mm. think that, that's the one I find almost the least convincing. Um, I mean, what do you think about this Moore's changing reputation and utopia's part in it? I'm not sure about Wolf Hall. I got very <laughs> upset about this, so let's just leave that. <laughs> but I think if you look at the history of the 20th century, and you mentioned Orwell and Huxley, um, of course, we have the Third Reich. And what happens up to 1989 is that utopian, utopianism, and in a way, therefore, also by proxy, Thomas More utopia, is seen as a static system, which is by definition dystopian. Right? Because it's static, it is an idea of one person um, um, which is introduced to that society without any democratic means at all and is ultimately serving one person or a group of people. That's what I, how, how I would see it, that kind of development, that often historical connections were made, political connections were made, which were sloppy and inaccurate, but nevertheless, they were made. I would say. And then, of course, with the fall of the wall, we have the whole debate of um, a whole camp of people declaring the end of history, saying, now, finally, it's proved capitalism is the system that works the best. It's flexible. It accommodates most people. And all the other systems, like socialism and communism, are ultimately totalitarian. And now we have it. And you... Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with all that. I'd, I'd sort of supplement that in, in a couple of ways. I mean, I'd, I'd say that the, the First World War um, was, you know, but long before the you know, rise of Stalinism and Nazism, yeah. was, was also a crisis for utopian mm. thought, a moment at which all those 19th century ideals and indeed the very notion of, of progress mm. was pitched into, into an acute Acute crisis, and you know, one might say that lots of utopian ideals were simply trampled underfoot, really, in the in, in the trenches uh, during the First World War. After that, and particularly from the 1930s onwards, but but also uh, before that, I think, in you know, once the um, revolution has taken place in in the Soviet in Russia, um, the there's this lazy, as you say, inaccurate, but nonetheless uh, extremely influential conflation of notions of totality with, with that of totalitarianism. If absolutely central to utopian thinking throughout its history, certainly going back to, to more, is the idea that one should, one should have a total reconception of society, that utopian thought involves totalizing society, reconceiving society on, uh, on systematic terms, um, then that gets collapsed into uh, the idea of totalitarianism uh, to this uh, very negative dystopian model as it's perceived by people like Karl Popper, etc., um, of, um, of, of totally reorganizing society, of doing it systematically, autocratically, uh, and, um, and exploitatively. So, uh, and, and yeah, and I, I think that's, that really deals a bit of a death blow uh, to... Right, so this is essentially a very useful way for defenders of the status quo, arguing that anything progressive is is dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and likely yeah. the problem. Yeah. Um, I think it's almost time for any utopians in the audience to pluck up the courage and speak about their terrible experiences uh, <laughs> running community. But I, and, and I think people up here also have many more things to say. I'm sure we can all talk on. Um, if anyone has any anything they wish to say, there is a roving microphone. I think there will be a roving microphone. You can just stick up your hand and, um, and it will come to you and speak nice and clearly into it. Uh, we can sort of see you up here, so uh, do feel free to raise a hand anytime. I can see one, it's wonderful over there. You gave a delightfully flexible idea of the blueprint that this word has produced and the different um, historical interpretations. And yeah, I just was left with the question, well, okay, what are we doing now with this hologram in 2016? What does it tell us about us? So what does it say about us now? Now, that's, that's a very good question. It comes back to this question of why it's relevant. Why is it still relevant, Utopia? Would somebody like to answer first about this? Well, I think utopia. Sorry, we, I'm no, no, jumping no. in. I think you know, <laughs> utopian 
the idea of something being utopian these days is, is, is primarily pejorative, isn't it? And usually if it's used in political terms with politicians, it's taken to mean... Um, I mean, Michael's blogged about this, actually, in the way, in the, way um, the term might be used with Jeremy Corbyn, for example, to suggest that these are um, unrealistic or um, unelectable um, ideas. You know, it's a sort of shorthand for that. And I think... Um, to to take that understanding of utopian is is I mean it's a misreading of the concept really um, because to to be utopian in Moore's terms would be to be open to thinking about change um, and it would be to be experimental um, and to be thoughtful um, rather than to have a blueprint that that is you know sort of set in stone and, and rigid so. Um, I think that we, we're rather stuck, actually, in our notion of what it means to be utopian. Um, I don't think we've fully taken on board um, the sort of more complicated meanings of that term when, when we use it in political discourse. I don't know if you... There's, I mean, that's, I, I actually agree. agree. I mean, there's that moment, which I think, if I studied it rightly, when Moore's alter ego, more in, in utopia, tries to revise Hitler Day on how to talk about politics, and Hitler Day really just wants to throw everything at people he's arguing with and sort of attack them and go for them. And, and Moore says, well, I think you need to be, you sort of need to tailor your material a bit more to the situation. And Hitler Day just rejects this as being, well, you're telling me to lie. I don't want, I'm not going to do that. He doesn't understand at all. So in a way, the lesson's still relevant, but the misunderstanding over it is, is right there in the book too, isn't it, over what the utopian in the sense of the book could, could mean. The Sorry. people over overlook the fun and the satire, don't they? Yeah. And the creativity. And that's what I would, would suggest, is that this is about creative thinking without saying this has got to be like this. But to be um, use it as a... And Ruth couldn't be here this evening, but Ruth Levitas would say it should be used as a method of thinking. And it's basically like a sociological method of thinking. So what you do is you use that creativity, the openness, as, as Chloe said, to analyze society, the state we're in. But you can also use that fun and the satirical way of undermining, subverting um, society, doing something very different. And if you look at small, not intentional communities, but even sort of small moments of activism, you can see it like this. If you look at yarn bombing or seed bombing, stuff like this, right? There are little moments where we suddenly stop and think, why is that, who knitted this thing around the tree? Why do we need this? It doesn't make the tree necessarily nicer, but it makes you stop and think. And, and, and I wonder if that's often overlooked in, in Thomas More. I, I think utopia more generally and perhaps more as, uh, as part of this field of, of thinking is, um, becomes periodically uh, relevant again uh, as a result of broader historical crises. I mean, it's true in the late 19th century, the period I know best, because capitalism itself was in crisis and after you know, 25 years or so in the third quarter of the 19th century where it was relatively stable uh, and there weren't too many uh, revolutions across Europe, it was suddenly in the, in the 1870s pitched into a series of economic uh, recessions at a time when also not unconnected to that, you know, the working class movement was, was on the rise. And it suddenly became uh, a way of of trying to think a way out of out of a, a situation which which looked pretty dark for for some people and for others had immense opportunities. I think, arguably, that we're living in in a similar period today. I don't want to make any apocalyptic claims for the for the present, but I think that the environmental crisis, the ecological crisis that we face today, um, has. Uh, has brought the future back onto the agenda in the way that it was in the 19th century, late 19th century, for different reasons. And that once the future is on the agenda in ways that we simply can't ignore, um, words like dystopia start to crop up again. Um, and once words like dystopia start to crop up again, then, then utopian alternatives to a potentially dystopian present or, or, or near future um, also you know, become kind of imperative and, and pressing. Uh, do we have any other points, questions, attacks from the audience? Yeah. Oh, sorry, we got one in front and then, and so one and then two. Okay. Uh, thanks. Um, I'm curious about how John Lilly's play, The Woman in the Moon, which is certain utopia, um, written in the late 1580s, early 1590s, how that fits in with Moore's utopia. Is it possible to write a play set in utopia without it having any 
um, sort of echoes of Thomas More's book. I, I wrote two points about. Sorry, you might have something better to say, but all I know is I did see a production out quite recently. It was hilarious, I and mean, it's Lily's only play in verse. Is that its distinct feature? Um, but, but sorry, would you like to? No, you would like to. No, I wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. No one would like to say anything. Because I don't know the text well well enough. But the other thing about that is is utopia does crop up in the 18th century, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Being used as sort of code for for Ireland, isn't isn't it? Yes, and the moon idea is not so new either, because I'm thinking of Kepler and the man in the moon Godwin, which was written in... 16th century. I can't remember, something 17th century. Anyway, something like this. Um, No one knows. And I think this idea of that, that you have the, you take the moon as a symbol of otherworldliness, that's how I see the lily text as well. And it does go back to travel narratives, not necessarily through more directly, but through Kepler. People like this, this idea of what do you do if you imagine other planets and life on other planets? Would society look like it would look when you imagine something in Australia, in Antipodes? Mm. That's how I would see the the link, which is the travel narrative, the imaginary voyage, and then back to Thomas More. So not a clear link, perhaps. And I think it also fits in the, in the culture of, sort of a lot of other travel drama from that period and perhaps yeah. later, which is, um, as Nicole says, about sort of imagining these quite absurd realities mm. um, in, in ways that are sometimes directly drawing on real places, um, but, but also sort of enjoying the fictive possibilities of somewhere that is entirely unreachable. Okay, thank you. Sorry, I have a further question. If you gentleman over there. Thank you very much. Uh, I mean, I think there's this tension that exists between the present and the future that all of us have to some extent, and the fact that you know that whatever you want is not achievable and it's just a goal and it's something that one wants to attain, does make us very, very creative and looks at different, different alternatives that one could follow and does question oneself about what pathways one could follow. And I think it's beautifully done with more uh, personification of more within Utopia where it does have this dialogue and we actually start to, to sort of uh, trace out the pathways to some extent. And I think there's this other notion, this wonderful notion of progress I mean, I worry to some extent, you know, is there progress if that is at the heart of utopian thought and, 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 and visions that we have? Is there progress if we take away the scientific component from it? Because with civilizations, you know that it, it sort of oscillates around a mean of zero. But if you say that from generation to generation, there is an incremental increase of the scientific knowledge, then if you fold those two together, you get some form of progress in, 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 within that thought pattern? And is that a way in which you know, one could think about developing uh, the, the, uh, a sort of a rise in uh, progress? And I think also just because the mic's going to go away from me. <laughs> uh, because I think also I think it's very, very important to personalize it. I mean, you know, you, uh, to, to ask the question, is there a utopian in all of us? And forget about more for a moment. You know, I mean, you know, we are all potentially, we all have visions of, of, of utopian, as, as you said earlier on. And I think to some degree, we've got to ask, is that an innate attribute in all of us or not? I'll stop there. Yeah. Thank you very much. Would anyone like to plunge in on science in the future? Progress, I'm not, uh, it's different in the 19th century. The idea of progress in the 18th century is not necessarily the scientific knowledge. It's more about perfecting human nature, which is a dangerous concept in itself, if you think about it. Um, But at the same time, it didn't mean necessarily that it was the, that the progress of civilization was something positive. If you look at Rousseau, for instance, he would say, no, we went the wrong way. And he would go back to an idealization of rural life, small communities, and kind of go back to Arcadia. So even the idea of progress needs to be really investigated much more critically. What does it mean? So fair enough. I think you made that point. 19th century is different, isn't it, with the idea of progress? Matthew, would you like to? Yeah, I mean, in the 19th century, the term progress, the ideology of progress has a talismanic 
importance um, to an extent that it hasn't done before, I think. And certainly the utopias uh, of the 19th century are, for the most part, quite invested in uh, this notion of progress. So if we go back to Edward Bellamy's book, I mean, it's, it's premised really on the idea that, uh, that the present will ultimately evolve into into the desired future if we all uh, slightly reconfigure our relation to the world and our thinking about it and our political positions. So Bellamy is, is fully signed up, if you like, to the, to the idea of progress, a sort of bourgeois liberal notion of progress. William Morris is quite different. He's extremely troubled by this notion of progress. Uh, he's very suspicious of it as a socialist and a revolutionary socialist. Um, he thinks that uh, it's an excuse for merely extending the status quo, the present, as it's currently constituted into the future. And he, on the contrary, is rather attracted, sometimes in ways that he's not completely comfortable with, to, to an idea of crisis and even an idea of barbarism, simply as a way of scrambling and erasing the, the force and influence of that 19th century notion of progress. That's one of the reasons why uh, he's attracted to the idea of revolution, I think, social revolution. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons why he's particularly taken by a book called After London, published in the mid-1880s by someone called R Richard Jeffries, the nature writer, uh, which imagines London collapsing uh, imploding really as a result of some mysterious ecological catastrophe. Morris writes in his correspondence about how, as he puts it, absurd hopes curled around uh, around his, his heart, I think he puts it, as he, as he reads this account of the, a relapse into barbarism because it opens up the vision of of a completely different future, one that's discontinuous with 19th century liberal notions of, of progress. I mean, of course, that beca it becomes, <laughs> the, the concept of barbarism becomes a, an extremely volatile and dangerous one, in, particularly in the, in the 20th century. And what Morris couldn't have predicted just how, uh, uh, just how <laughs> you know, appalling barbarism uh, might be. Um, so, but, but, you know, we can't blame, blame him for, for that, as it were. Yeah. That would be unfair. <laughs> sure, it's Moore's night. <laughs> now, do, we, uh, do we have um, one or two uh, or five more? We've just got time if anyone has. There's one front, sorry. I didn't see it. We'll take this as the last, last one. I think. Okay. Uh, thank you, all of you. Um, I was wondering if you would be willing to speak a bit more, too, about uh, the relationship between utopian texts and fictions in terms of entertainment, readership, aesthetics, utopias as fiction rather than just as social commentary. Absolutely, yes, I'm sure somebody, who would like Chloe? Yeah, sure, well, um, there's, a, there's an uneasy relationship, isn't there, between utopia and fiction, and I think um, for, you know, so utopia in its earliest um, formulations in the 16th and 17th century, there's a sort of, um, they enjoy playing with the boundaries, the borders between fact and fiction, and Moore does that in a very playful way with Utopia, as has been mentioned before, it's maps, it's alphabet, so he creates a book which looks like a real travel narrative, it looks like a nice little sort of travel text, and of, of course it's fictional, and um, part of the um, enjoyment and the playfulness of Utopia is because it sits in that in that sort of unknown space. Um, and I think it becomes increasingly difficult for utopias to do that, actually, um, in, in convincing ways. Um, and, of course, in, with the development, um, you know, of um, the utopian novel, I think some of that, some of that is, is lost, really, um, that kind of ambiguity. Um, I don't know whether others would agree. That's probably something that changes. I think it's because it struggles then with becoming a novel, I guess, so you have those tensions as well. Some people would say, certainly students often say that the earlier utopian texts are not terribly exciting to read, but that's not the point, whereas the 19th century, 20th century novels try to bring that in, don't they? And then with the dystopias, that changes again. Um, yeah, and then, of course, with the 20th century, 21st century, some people would say that the dystopias are much more interesting aesthetically, if you think about Margaret Atwood, but I'm not sure if I would agree with that or not. I'm just throwing it in. And you can think about that. Matthew, what's, what's your answer to that? Well, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's certainly the case that, that there is a, 
a misfit between the utopia, utopian form and the novel in, in the sense that the novel uh, needs conflict really to, to, to thrive and survive and its, you know, it, its characters and its plots only develop as a result of conflict and strife and an utopia is by definition all about eliminating conflict and strife uh, and you know, utopian novels tend not to have very interesting character developments. They tend to be uh, static and rather dull, the characters. They tend to be two-dimensional, kind of romance figures often. Um, and, uh, and, and the plots tend, too, to be pretty, pretty stationary. So it isn't really until the dystopian fiction for, fictional form takes off in the 20th century that uh, that a kind of solution is found to this. You know that, that the future becomes really ripe for the for the novel, uh, and that's only by making all the, the good dreams into into bad ones by by building uh, strife and 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 um, you know often negative character development in, into it. On that high note, <laughs> I think we're, we're going to finish and we can continue the discussion somewhere else, um, somewhere, not nowhere, but somewhere utopian, <laughs> somewhere even better than that. Will you please join me in thanking our speakers, um, Nicole Pohl, Chloe Houston and Matthew Bowman. Thank you very much for coming. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.